Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm Tim Cronin. I'm John Simon. Today, we have with us who I think is probably going to be our most entertaining guest to date, at least, Tom Keefe, who's a very prominent plaintiff's lawyer. He practices uh, across the river from us, well, and all over the St. Louis area. Tom is a professional colleague of John and I's, but also a dear friend of ours. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tim, the most recent recipient of Lon. Lon's last name. Lon's last name is Hawker. Didn't Warren Zevon do a song that involved Lon somehow? I can't remember. Wasn't that one of the lyrics from The Werewolf of London? Yeah, I think it was. Yes, yeah. It's Lon Chaney walking down the street. (laughs) Uh, So, anyway, well, thank you, uh, Warren. Glad to see that you're back from the dead. Didn't Warren also do a a song about lawyers, too? Do you remember that? Uh, He probably did. I bet it wasn't very flattering. Uh, most of them aren't. Okay. <laughs> well, Tom, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, your practice, who you work with? It's Keith, Keith, and Unsol. What kind of cases you handle? Well, I mean, I think the first thing I would say is is that we do what you guys do. You guys do more class action cases, I think, or mass torts than we do. We represent people, and we usually just do one plaintiff, one defendant. Over the years, we've really been fortunate. The, the firm began, my late wife, and I guess the over-under on how far I would get into this conversation before mentioning Rita would have been one minute. So yeah. anybody who took the under. <laughs> you went longer than I thought. Yeah, you I got, got it right. <laughs> uh, but in 1979, I graduated from law school. I worked for a large law firm downtown here in St. Louis. It's now called Hush Blackwell. And I lasted nine months because I did not do well with coats, ties, timesheet and authority. And And I mentioned that you're wearing bright orange shoes. You may indeed mention it as we get to know each other better. I'll even tell you what color my underwear is. (laughs) Uh, But I didn't do well with the coach ties timesheet authority. And so I left there after nine months. Rita and I left. Rita was a legal secretary. I met Rita. She was working for Rex Carr, who's a person that John and I both know and a former member and now deceased member of the inner circle. And I met Rita, and I was in law school, so then I worked for a Sheppenberg. So there was a bet, and this is a true story. I was bet by one of the young partners there that I would not goose Pete Hush. And I knew I was not going to last like long. Goose him. Goose him, yeah. I mean, he walked down the hallway. I was going to come up behind him. I was going to stick my finger, and I was going <laughs> to goose him. Uh, and the issue was going to be the bet was, there was a twofold bet. Bet one, would I do it? And bet two, if I did it, would he be goosey? Because you understand what a goosey person is. If you goose them, they jump. Yeah. And if they're not goosey, then they don't jump. And a lot of smart money was saying Pete wasn't going to jump because, of course, you know, he was getting up there in years. So I did it. And uh, after I goosed him, I thought I'd go to the east side and hang my own shingles. So that's when we began our practice over on the east side. And, and you're uh, with your son. I am with my son now. And, and Sammy. And Sammy, Samantha Unsel, uh, who's my daughter-in-law, our daughter-in-law. And then uh, Kelly Crosby, uh, who married our godson, Michael, and uh, Clay Spodeman, who married our daughter, 
Kelly. So as you might wonder, if you're interested in employment, uh, you need to be one of the children or marry one of the children. Uh, <laughs> but other than that, we have a strict anti-nepotism rule. Uh, so we started in a sole practitioner. Rita was my secretary. Then eventually I went into practice with a guy by the name of Bruce Cook after two or three years. And we practiced together for about 10. And then about 1992, I went back out on my own. I had an associate named Eric who was with me for a couple of years. And then Eric left and then I was again by myself until my son Tommy joined me. And then since then, it's grown with the family affair. As you mentioned, you're in the inner circle with John, which has led to you and he getting to spend more time together. You guys were just in L.A., right? Yes, and it was a nice trip. John and Margie got there on Monday, and then obviously there's a lot of planned activities. By the way, you know, we were in Beverly Hills, and I didn't know there's a Beverly Hills, Missouri. Do you guys know that? Do you hear? I imagine it's a little different. Yeah. yeah. Well, did, did you go to the wrong one? <laughs> well, we were there. I mean, the inner circle was, it was in Beverly Hills. And I recall arriving and as I walked into the hotel, they saw me and they started playing the theme from the Beverly Hillbillies. And uh, everything from there went uh, uphill or downhill as the case may be. But yes, we are in the inner circle. And yes, it has given me a chance to see John and more importantly, get to know Margie, who's magic. Yeah. And uh, we had a pretty good meeting. I would yeah, say we did. It we did. It's always interesting. It's always interesting. You always learn new things. John forwards me email chains that happen where you guys ask each other questions or talk about your cases, but he usually only forwards me the chains once you have offered a comment. <laughs> well, occasionally I'll offer a comment. We were talking yesterday, there's an expert witness a lot of people are fond of. The person I use, particularly in my Baby cases, of course, is the person you use, which is Vogel? Dr. Vogel. Yeah. yeah. He's fair. He's down the middle. There he has become so much antagonism, institutional antagonism towards plaintiffs who are prosecuting a personal injury case. And so many of the catastrophically injured plaintiffs, or even non-catastrophically injured plaintiffs, their treating doctors have now come under the control of the hospital lawyers. Absolutely. And yeah. you can't talk to them. So what I've done, and, and I've changed this over the years, but I've become more and more a devotee of this uh, principle. I don't prove my client's damages anymore with the treating doctor. I don't trust them. If they're not going to let me talk to the doctor, my client's doctor, yeah, and they're not going to let me talk to him, period, not with or without legal oversight, I don't know what he's going to say. And so my plan now is, for example, in a birth injury case, I just proved the injury with Dr. Vogel. I yeah, just have I, Dr. I, Vogel. I, I do the same thing. And it, with me, we do a lot of stuff in federal court, the product stuff mostly. And there, I've run into judges who want the treating doctors to prepare reports, and they just, they won't do it. And that's kind of how it got started years ago. And I just think you're right. And then if they're willing to give a deposition, and even if you can talk to them, they want you in and out quickly. You well, know, and you got and somebody say, who's- I'm not your expert. Right. I'm not giving you causation, yeah. or I'm not, and like, well, you're under oath. I'm just asking you to answer questions truthfully. Well, I think that's right. And the, the other issue now that we've all come to learn when we've been trying cases in the post-COVID era, Zoom ain't bad. I mean, Zoom is not a bad way to present a witness. After having presented some witnesses, and fortunately this case may be since September, I've completed preparation on seven cases. And I've started three of them. We picked a jury in one and we actually were getting ready to pick a jury in the other. All the others resolved the Sunday before trial. Yeah. And it's maddening because obviously the preparation is the worst part. Yeah. But these cases you don't get paid until, and we tried a case to verdict last summer 
And we presented a witness by Zoom. And after you do that, it's so preferable to an evidence deposition because you put the evidence deposition on TV, you can clean it up, but the jury still doesn't feel like they're watching something in real time. Right, they're watching a videotape. And I think that with the ability of Zoom to share documents, if you can get the doctor to come on Zoom, but it's a real problem. They're not going to come on Zoom. If they're going to ever testify, it's going to be at a deposition, and they're going to start the deposition on Friday after evening at 7 p.m. and then ask you, you really want it? So, yeah, that's really been an issue. And not just that, but the scheduling. It's phenomenal. We've done it. And having an expert sit around for two days or a day and a half Absolutely. wondering when they're going to testify or yeah. their flights. We've had that almost every case, you know, with yeah. the cancellation yeah. of the flights. Absolutely. So, I mean, they're all real issues. And I think that to a large extent, I think that, you know, Zoom may give us some relief. We have a case we're trying next month. This is in Springfield, Illinois. It's 120 miles north of here. We fly witnesses into St. Louis. They still got a two-hour two drive to get yeah. to testify. And on top of that, we get another problem because the cases in Illinois, the family lives in Missouri, and the child's teachers, who we would like to call special ed teachers, who I think no matter how much they're polluted by the lawyers, their hearts are so big, they'll be fair and honest. We're trying to coordinate their testimony by Zoom. You can't expect those people to drive to Springfield. So it does. There's really been some challenges. But at the same time, I think people kind of recognized, at least by our experience with the jury, the jury did pay attention to the witness uh, who was testifying by Zoom. So we're going to try to do evidence depositions, you know, which used to always be you do an evidence deposition and you do an evidence video deposition. And then now I think, obviously, that would be the least now of our preferences as opposed to if you could so, Tom, you know, some of the inner circle folks, uh, Rick Friedman, yeah. you know, they've tried full cases, Zoom, and I, I've never done that. I've no. had witnesses in trial. Have you done that at all? Or Friedman is doing a series of cases against Monsanto, which involve an exposure and a fear or a realization of fear of cancer. And he's done the entire cases. He's gone you know, straight to finish. I mean, I think the jury does assemble for, to deliberate, if I'm not mistaken. I think maybe that's right. But short of that, he's done the entire case and ended up getting very good results. I don't think we'll ever get there. I think that so many people work remotely. And obviously, people are starting to say, maybe employers or otherwise, hey, you got to come back into work sometimes. I mean, you have to actually be here because there's something to be gained by, you know, having collegiality, interaction, human interaction. I think that the same thing happened with Zoom. I don't think that trying cases to verdict on Zoom is going to become the norm. I think it's become kind of a tributary that grew out of the pandemic. But I think ultimately, you know, it will recede. But the Zoom technology will be part of witness presentation as opposed to the entire trial. I got to tell you. Depots, even if they're within like around town that I used to go to in person, I do almost all of them by Zoom right now. Because as you know, Tom, in Missouri, all depots are potentially evidence depots. And if the person becomes unavailable or something, I want to be able to use it. And the presentation of that witness with documents, the way you can pull them up and share them and highlight them with Zoom is so much better than a videotape. And I haven't noticed like much of a difference in my ability to get the kind of testimony that I want over Zoom. I agree with that. Now, I have a little bit of insecurity about the tech. I've gotten pretty good at sharing documents just through practice. And some of these apps that are used now in trial, I've gotten very comfortable with. When you do a career arc like mine, 
I mean, when I first started trying cases is that, you know, you didn't present anything to the jury that they could see. And then we went to what I would refer to as the Brady Drake period, where we used these giant poster yep. boards. Mm -hmm. And I remember carrying my Brady Drake from the office to the courthouse. We were trial all the time. And, you know, you'd hold them up in the air. And the problem was, is that I swear to God, is that a good gust of wind came and you'd take flight. They were giant <laughs> sails. And I felt like Sally Field, you know, the flying <laughs> nun or Dumbo. And I'm flying through the air thinking, this is going to be a good case. I mean, I feel so light on my feet. And then after that, of course, we went to Elmo, which was the next thing. And now this trial pad, yeah. which is Now we have screens we put up and you have somebody with their laptop pulling up exhibits and zooming them up. So what's next? The hologram? What's the 3D thing just shows up in the middle of the room? The hologram? We haven't maybe? quite gotten there yet. <laughs> we'll yeah. I, I, I remember a movie called Total Recall. And yeah. I, the hologram image I have is of Arnold. So I don't know if I can yeah. ever use yeah. a hologram. But yeah, I think that that's a, certainly a direction that's going... When we started practicing law, and before there was so much sophisticated technology in terms of presenting evidence, it was like in Shakespearean terms. The play was the thing. In other words, the most important thing you brought to the production was the screenplay. In other words, the evidence. Right. You had assembled a story, and you could prove every line of the story. People used to be better able to digest information and learn it just orally than they can now because of how they take in information every day. Because people used to read. And right. so they would take <laughs> the information in that fashion. And now, you know, the play yeah, is not as important. The production seems to be at least as important. Look what's happened to the attention span. You know, jurors don't have remotes to click, but they click. Right. They just block. Yeah. I gave you three minutes <laughs> yeah, uh, to prove exactly. your point. I'm jacked out. Well, and I think that's right. Now, I do think that different lawyers use a different sweet spot in terms of, for example, how many PowerPoints or visual aids you want to use in opening or closing. If a lawyer has an affinity for talking to people, watching them produce the evidence would just put you to sleep, but it's so methodical and it's right there and it's just goes on to this chart and it just goes on to this chart and it just, the proof becomes irrefutable. Yeah. You know, Tom, one of the good points, the inner circle meeting we just left, Right. we saw presentations and I forget exactly who did them, but it was about somebody who used visuals and somebody who didn't and both got phenomenal results and both are phenomenal lawyers and they, they're 180 degrees apart. Right. One just doesn't use them. And the other one, can't think of who it was. I think it was from Atlanta. And he, Lloyd. Yeah, Lloyd. And it was just every sentence had a visual, you know, every couple and, and, sentences. And it's ironic because I remember that meeting is that the lawyer who did not use them, uh, Shane Inspector, and is a believer in not using them because he believes you need to make a contact with the jury. When Lloyd first got into the inner circle and then he was doing a presentation showing what he had done in a closing argument, thing, and it was so much technology. And he stood up and he said to him, uh, uh, now, Lloyd, you're a handsome man, which, of course, brought a lot of jokes, something <laughs> no one's ever said to me. Uh, and he said, the jury needs to get to know you. And when you put so much technology up there, they're not ever getting to know you. All they're doing is they're getting to know the screen. You can get to the same point two different ways. Yeah. So, Tom, you are one of the best, if not the best, cross-examiners I've ever seen. 
we like to compliment our guests a little bit on the show. Well, I think and that so, was part of the deal. They said, yeah. if you come over uh, to our office and agree to be on a podcast, is that we will blow sunshine up your ass at least four times. We're also going to call you crazy and make fun of your shoes, though. So well, don't I, I'm only crazy when I forget to take my medicine, which is frequently. That was leading up to a question, though. How do you approach a depot of, say, a defendant doctor or defense expert? Like, what prep do you do? mindset strategies because i've seen you or heard about you so many times just getting a defendant doctor in your first depot in the case to admit they committed malpractice so how do you approach a depot to prepare and what's your mindset to get them to do that i am not a big devotee of expert witnesses now that doesn't mean that i will shamelessly ask people for experts uh, <laughs> when i need them but i grew up believing that when you put an expert witness on the stand a good lawyer, your opponent's always going to get more out of him on cross than you're ever going to get on direct. Yeah. The jury expects you've paid this guy. They expect he's going to come in and say what you want him to say. So the only thing that happens when you put on an expert is bad stuff. And I always kind of feel kind of cheap when I have an expert testify. It's like I've hired this hooker and, you know. To say whatever. This, right. Yeah, I say whatever I asked him to say. But to me, if you can get the defendant to say it, then you don't really need an expert. Now, I'll still hire experts in certain jurisdictions because trial judges just can't get past the notion that a defendant it. can admit himself into, I can make a submissible case with the defendant's right. admissions. How do you do it? I don't know how you do it. I mean, you know, Rita always used to say, big deal, Kiefer, you can stick words in people's mouth. That doesn't make you such a big deal. I said, I know, but it did pay for the house. It helps a little bit. And, uh, <laughs> it uh, does help. It's not a bad thing. She was right, though, whenever she'd always put me in my place. When I depose any defendant, and, you know, we do 50% malpractice. We do a lot of products cases. We do a lot of premises cases, whatever. The challenge, if you can do it with a doctor, and then to a slightly lesser extent with an engineer, then after that, it's really easy because, you know, you're doing it with people that are really knowledgeable and smart and highly educated. So the one thing that you do first and foremost, I believe, when you go to depose a witness, you know, let's just say a defendant doctor or a defendant engineer, you got to establish the pecking order. And you have to establish the pecking order and you have to be meaning, very clear meaning with who's it. in charge in this step. Exactly right. Who's in charge. And you can do it any number of ways. You can do it physically. You can do it with phraseology. You can do it with the tone of your voice. Yeah. Especially if, you know, the deposition isn't being recorded. And one of the things that people need to understand is that when you deal with the doctor or any defendant who's giving a deposition, they're not comfortable. Doctors, for example, or engineers, they are used to living in a world where they say jump and every person says how I. Instead of somebody questioning every single thing they're Not saying. Not only decision questioning them, but right. taking them out of their world. Right. I mean, they don't get to be in the hospital where the nurses are just kowtowing or in their office where they get a similar thing or with patients who believe they're the fourth person of the Blessed Trinity because they're the person that's going to provide them some cure and right. some maintenance and some cure. They're now not only been pulled out of that environment, they're now confronting a person that they just can't stand because they have been taught that all lawyers, particularly lawyers who represent injured patients, are the enemy. Right. And so the first thing you realize is you realize is that that's how they're coming into this. They're coming into it and they are uncomfortable. 
And so what you basically do is that you just make it clear to them, there's nothing to be uncomfortable about. These are the rules. I ask you a question, you answer it. And when they don't answer my question, I ask it again. And if they don't answer my question again, then I will start to literally make it very clear to them. And oftentimes, perhaps not in the most respectful manner. <laughs> and it's by doing things like that early in the deposition that you set the rules of engagement. We're going to do this. And doctor, if you don't want to answer my questions, that's fine. Or if you want to volunteer, I'll just move to strike the non-responsive portion. Or if you want to persist in not answering my questions, then I'll file a motion and we'll have the court determine whether or not you're answering the questions. And of course, that threat of bringing the court to answer the question will also have an effect that'll cause them to answer. Second thing you have to do is you got to know the material. You know, if it's a products case, you've got to know everything there is to know about a roof crush. You got to mm -hmm. know everything that there is to know so that the witness understands that you understand. With medicine, you have to make sure the doctor understands that you understand as much about this medical issue as they do. So they you can. can't just say some BS to me, buddy. Yeah, because yeah, I'm going to know. If, uh, you're like <laughs> and you've been doing medical malpractice for so long. You've handled every type of case multiple times. You know, a lot of times you might know the medicine about the particular thing that the case is going to turn on better than the doctor does. Well, I certainly would hope that at the time I'm taking the deposition, I know the medicine on the topic that we're deposing him at least as well or better than the doctor. And over the years, yes, you do. You start to develop. My dad was a workers' comp defense lawyer. I did comp for years. You want to know the truth? I would be more concerned in a lot of my cases. I don't even talk about malpractice. Let's talk about trucking accidents, John. Or let's talk about somebody with a severe personal injury. I would be a lot more nervous if there was a comp defense lawyer who was cross-examining that treater <laughs> than I would be yeah. if it's a civil defense because comp lawyers, plaintiff and defendant comp, they take medical depositions all day. And that's in large part, I learned a lot about how to take medical depots uh, during the years I did comp. And of course, I learned about medicine because my dad was a comp lawyer, and so we talked about the anatomy and physiology at the dinner table. The beauty of doing the cases that way, and I would counsel people on doing this, is that remember in Illinois, and in Missouri you use it, but it's still the same thing. The jury doesn't know. When I try cases and I have those admissions, the jury doesn't know that I had to work on that doctor you know, for 90 minutes of forcing him to answer my question and backing him into a corner. And in terms of the other question you ask, how do you do it? I don't know how you do it, Tim. What you do is you listen to the doctor's answer and that begets the next question and you just allow it to happen organically, always bearing in mind where you want to go and always bearing in mind the knowledge that you have about the medicine. And hopefully as you begin that pursuit, to push the doctor to the truth, which is what cross-examination is, and that admission that, hey, you're right, I did screw up, is that all the while that you're doing that, you're doing that against a backdrop that you have caused him to understand. You're not in the hospital, you're not in your doctor's office, and you're not at home, you know, where your spouse is calling you the fourth person of the Trinity. You're in my world, and you have to go along. And then when you get the admission, then obviously you want to build on it and take as much of it as you can. But the key in terms of then developing and having a case that you can put in front of a jury with minimal experts, which I think are more effective cases, including malpractice, is then you build on it. So then when you go to the next witness, you have those admissions already in your pocket that you confront the next witness with so that 
ultimately, when they hire an expert witness, and you can say to their expert witness, so doctor, the only way you could offer testimony in support of defendant Dr. Jones is to disregard their sworn testimony. In other words, what he said under oath is either a lie or he's stupid. And once you get him to that question, you're either going to get a big verdict or they're going to pay your client a lot of money. Yeah. Well, Tom, on that note, we want to thank you sincerely for coming and being a guest on our podcast. I bet we break our previous record for listens in an episode with this one, (laughs) but we thank you very much for coming on. Well, I enjoyed it. As I said, it's really a nice idea. It's a great idea that you do this, and it's a lot of fun. Anyone who has listened to this from start to finish, I would recommend that you reevaluate your life and see whether or not there may be other things that maybe you might be doing with your time than this. But uh, what did Jack Buck say? Thanks for your time this time. Till next time. So long. This has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Tim Cronin. I'm Eric Beath. I'm John Simon. We'll see you next time. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. Share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And if you want a lively look at life and law from a female attorney's point of view, check out our Heels in the Courtroom podcast. Subscribe today, because the best lawyers never stop learning.